Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning everybody and uh, welcome to August uh, which Usually lives up to its name, and we have had some wind, so we should be ready for it. But at least it is, it is cold, but at least it is not wet. And now we're essentially over the hump. Once we get through the next, say, six weeks, uh, things look like, well, we usually get, things get warmer, and we know how us, uh, who live in Johannesburg, uh, can't take long winters, so all shall be well in course. I want to just start with a sort of sa- really sad issue, and that is the uh, the effect of emigration from South Africa on domestic workers. Um, they, lo- they lose, obviously because of the domestic, the, the immigration of their employers, they're losing jobs at an increasing rate, and of course they're getting saddled with increasing debt, given the rising cost of living. Now it's pointed out uh, that domestic workers still on average earn much lower than the national minimum wage of just under 3,000 rand per month, the, uh, which points, of course, to the problem that, you know, in, in, its, in its zeal to govern everything and to lay down rules and regulations for everything, the, the government has laid down a minimum wage, but it doesn't mean that a minimum wage can be paid in every Sector. Now, ideally, obviously, domestic workers should uh, should be paid whatever the government lays down. But the reality is, sadly, that government uh, sorry, domestic workers, domestic service, is seen to an extent as a luxury, and many people employ domestic workers who are and who they themselves are in the middle class, but their spending ability is fairly tight. and so the, the 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 workers are not going to necessarily receive what they what they should, but again we come to the argument of is it better to earn say two thousand eight hundred rand a month than to earn nothing at all, and particularly in this climate where you have fewer and fewer people being responsible financially for more and more people. Um, domestic workers have reported uh, that they're spending just 700 less than what they usually earned, which gives them no space for medical aid, insurance, and many other necessities each month. And one wonders from the discussion last week whether these low-cost medical aids that the private sector was offering that the Minister of Health has said he will not allow under the NHI could help in that regard. Apparently, anyway, back to this topic at hand, about 60% of recorded job losses were due to immigration. And the other, of course, is the cost of living, the drop in employment on the part of, by the employers who themselves are losing jobs. The costs are going up for them as well, and they pointed out the cost of the of petrol price going up tomorrow, I imagine. Yes, it's first, first Wednesday of the month. And that nearly a million workers, domestic workers, were... Uh, lost jobs in COVID. It's recovered, but it's never got back to pre-COVID uh, um, rates. And 
I think in the current circumstances, it can only get, it can only get much worse. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Well, uh, we essentially have our fears confirmed. Um, our Minister of Labour and Employment, if there aren't too many uh, contradictions in that, um, uh, Tulas Nkrezi has essentially confirmed that EE employment equity targets are actually quotas. And this comes from uh, John Steenhuisen, the leader of the Democratic Alliance. Um, he was on, he, 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 I think it was yesterday, Mr. Daisy vindicated essentially, according to Mr. Steenhuisen, the DA's fight against these quotas by confirming that his political party is resurrecting apartheid-era racial divisions in South Africa. And during this interview on SABC News, uh, the presenter, Aldrin Sampierre, put an example to Nnezi of, an, say, an Indian person who applies to work at a company that has met its target for the employment of Indians and asked, what would your advice be to that professional? What would you ask them to do? And his response, and he was audibly irritated apparently, Nazi said, you can't employ more than what we want. We? In the private sector? The minister wants the private sector to do certain things and they must do it. It it has supported our concern that the so-called targets are in fact quotas. There are so many rules, there are so many impositions in this sort of race regulation system that, that that's being imposed, that we've we've said that these are not targets; these are effectively quoted. Some PA followed up saying exactly. So what happens to that Indian person? And his answer const- constituted as. Uh, Mr. Steenhuisen said, devastating confirmation of the new racist depths that the ANC is plumbing with this act. He said he must look for jobs in other companies. Uh, And with that answer, he has confirmed that the Employment Equity Amendment Act is built on racial quotas that will effectively ban the employment of South African citizens on the basis of race in sectors and areas where they are, quote, over-concentrated. So, according to Mr. Steenhuisen's view, and I don't know if you would agree with him, he says that the ANC has now placed it on the public record that Indian-coloured, white and black South Africans will be barred from taking up positions in companies where the target for the race group has been met. Companies that employ more workers with the, quote, wrong skin colour will be severely punished by losing access to state contracts and by being fined up to 10% of their annual turnover. I mean, 10% of annual turnover could literally cripple companies. We have discussed before that these these so-called targets would be particularly devastating for coloured and Indian South Africans because quotas have been set already in in terms of their list of quotas, targets, 0.0% for these groups in various, excuse me, various sectors in various provinces. And the... Research shows that in order to comply with the what he, what he refers to as the ANC Race Quota Act, over 600,000 South Africans from all backgrounds will need to be replaced in their existing jobs because they have the wrong skin colour. Now, that's always been uh, fascinating, is the, the, the obligation to have 
the number of people per their race or group, per the demographics of the country. But I very much doubt, maybe I'm being a bit hopeful and it would have to be challenged, that the labor law which provides that, you know, you've got to be dismissed for good reason and uh, good reason can be retrenchment because of financial problems or restructuring or a whole lot of other things, would it include retrenching people so that they can replace one race group with another? So that, that's really one of the things that will have to be tested. The reason it would cover, come under retrenchment is because retrenchment occurs, dismissals occur under retrenchment when the reason for, for the dismissal is not the fault of the employee. So that's when employers would be obliged to retrench staff and pay uh, retrenchment uh, benef- p- packages. So the, the, uh, the, the problem that, that the government's going to have with this one is that that is going to be very sorely contested if it, if it, if it, if employers do it at all. Um, and it's, it's a really, I think it's, 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 it would be an immoral basis, uh, for retrenchment. The, the fighting talk coming from Mr. Stenhazen is that nothing will deter us in his, in this fight because history shows that South Africans will unite as one to defeat the ANC's reintroduction of apartheid laws. I hope he is correct. Now we look at the issue of poor old Chwani, the municipality of Chwani, which includes Pretoria, and that because of its financial position, it cannot increase employees' salaries. Now, the unions have taken this position to the Bargaining Council, um, the South African Municipal Workers' Union, to the Local Government Bargaining Council, and the council has ordered the the municipality to pay the increases that are provided for in an existing agreement for payment. Now, one can understand the workers' desire for increases and one can understand to some extent, if not entirely, the local government association building council, sorry, bargaining council's position that they must be paid. But the reality is, and uh, the the mayor, uh, Celia Brunk, has said, we just don't have the money. Um, And Whereas most areas in the public sector, you know, the public, the state of, uh, what do you call them, the state-owned enterprises have paid wages between 3.5% and over 7%. The city council, which is not in the hands of the ANC currently, says they need to improve the finances of the city before they can pay. They just don't have the money. So essentially you can have all the agreements you like um, in a very cash-strapped municipality and if you take money from elsewhere for the salary increases you just you know, other services are going to uh, are going to suffer and I think the decision has been made that, you know, there's no budget for it it hasn't been budgeted, it's been budgeted for but the money simply isn't there to do it and while, again, as I say, one understands the situation of the union members and the workers of the municipality, um, they're supporting people, they're supporting families, etc., but it still requires a, a great deal of uh, uh, sort of preparedness to sacrifice 
as we are all doing in the in 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 the, in, the, in the private sector, and the private sector has had nowhere near the the wage increases that municipal or governmental workers have had. IFM one hundred and one point nine megahertz of life. Well, dear listeners, we seem to have uh, fallen afoul of the weather because my first guest um, is is ill and her voice has disappeared, and her replacement advised me this morning that he was ill and his voice has disappeared. And I trust that this is all true because they know that I know where they live. So I'm going to talk about an element of the EFF's big thrash in the um, FNB Stadium this weekend. I know I know it was discussed uh, by my, my predecessor. But I just want to look at some of the images that came out of this. Um, it was spectacular, and Julius Malema knows how to put on a spectacular. He virtually filled the FNB Stadium. Uh, how he filled it and who with is, is, is a question open to debate. Everyone's wearing red T-shirts, so it's a very impressive sight. The stage for him and his colleagues is in the middle of the of the stadium, and confetti is let down at some point, and there's much uh, screaming and shouting and support at various uh, points during the uh, during the proceedings. But I couldn't help get a feeling of, you know, I was watching something reminiscent of. I don't want to overstate it, but something a little reminiscent of the Nuremberg Rally. I mean, the only thing missing from this spectacle was Lenny Riefendahl, who was the uh, filmmaker, the, the the excellent filmmaker, who crafted the 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 rally, uh, Hitler's rally, and it, so it looks on it looks on film to be really huge and really. Impressive and big, and it has to do with camera, uh, camera angles, etc., etc. And it's well known for being an extraordinary piece of propaganda. Now, this obviously didn't have that level of sophistication, but I think this was intended to be an extraordinary, uh, show an extraordinary level of uh, propaganda. It was big, and it was meant to be big, and it, that bigness is meant to send out a message that says that you know Ju- Julius Malema is the man, and he is the party. And let's be honest, we know he's the, he is the party. What was interesting was that he, you know, his speeches were fiery, and uh, he promised to sweep away social decay, which we know would only get worse under him, and keep end years of ANC's unkept social promises. Of course, what one worries about is that the, the promises that have been unkept are not promises we want kept. So... You have this essentially a stage elevated by a ladder and showered with a crowd. It's cheering. Da, 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 da. Um, and the impression that the EFF is the answer to South Africans' problems. Uh, he said that the EFF was ready to govern after the 2024 elections and they would deal with crime and corruption and student debt, with all of which are a problem. Um, uh, I, I mean, this, uh, I don't know, I almost laugh at this. I invite you to join me as we march to a future full of hope. Uh, 
I'm going to need sunglasses because the future is so bright. Now, the platform on which he was standing was red, and there's a, been a number of photographs of him standing on the, on the platform. He's wearing straight black trousers and a long sleeve, I suppose, T-shirt, but a, a collared shirt, but not for ties, and his eponymous red beret. And he's standing there, and he's been photographed both side-on and front-on before the adoring masses, extending his arm at an angle that is reminiscent of a certain salute with his fist clenched. Now, that to me is creepy beyond words because it's both fascistic and, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, the, the clenched fist is a sign of almost every radical black movement, whether it had been in America or on the African continent or whatever, that power, that aggression that goes into that clenched fist at an angle that, uh, that, that Hitler popularized. He also promised to th- lock up corrupt ANC leaders and they're going to fight corruption, which of course is, uh, a, a bit of a joke, given that his his history, which will come to itself, is is not exactly enlightening on the uh, on the uh, on the setup. Only the EFF can stop load shedding, and all of you who are unemployed, they're going to cancel any debt they may have. Results from universities will be made free of charge. I think that's now actually been ordered by a court. If a, if, if a child, if a student has has passed and they haven't been able to pay their fees, they must still get their uh, uh, the the graduation certificate. Um, and we will work with Cuba to establish quality primary health care. Now, it's a it's such a it's such a trope this because the ANC has had these this very parry relationship with with Cuba because it's a beloved socialist friend, and there's generally accepted that Cuba's healthcare, which is not the worst in the world, is not at all what it's been cracked up to be. And uh, we still have Cuban doctors in this country um, as a part of an exchange because Cuba needed the money to pay them salaries. So South Africa has actually been contributing both to Cuban doctors working here and some of Cuba's problems themselves, which is really, really ironic. Um, he, he's been, he's been critical of the government. He's going to lock up uh, Ramaphosa, etc., etc. So it's all, it's all very exciting, and uh, jobs are not going to become in the form of bribery given by the provincial government, which is obviously a dig at Panyaza Lasufi. Um, of uh, Gauteng, who gave, who's given jobs to a variety of programs, including a sort of safety program, sort of boy, women and men, young women and men, patrolling streets to try and improve safety, but with no, uh, you know, criminal uh, training, etc. So anyway, he's going to do that. Um, and I mean, it's, it's it, this is vintage. This is vintage, uh, uh, Malema.
And I think referring to Panyaza Lasufi. He is a little boy with a snotty face. He doesn't know anything. He went and took our children to Orlando Stadium to give them papers that did not deserve to be in their hands. He humiliated them. He filled them up in a stadium stating that he would give them a stipend. It is not a stipend. It is bribery so that you can vote for the ANC. Well, that might be true. We don't want bribery. We want the land. We want jobs. And we want them now. And they must be quality jobs. Now, you know, the sheer rhetoric of it, one can understand it being given in that particular heated and excited environment. But it's all cannot be, cannot be obtained. It's, it's rubbish. It's, it's agitprop. It's real just trying to, to, to make it to make a noise. But the problem is that, you know, Malema has, has very often said things that amount to or uh, hate speech, have been declared hate speech, or made comments that have not been asked to be dealt with as hate speech that are not hate speech, and uh, this was dealt with uh, earlier by Howard. But every, his tone, his raised voice, uh, outstretched arm, everything is about an incipient violence that is that, that is in, intended to be implied. I, I, and I don't think one can understate, understate that. He, I remember when he was the head of the ANC Youth League, we expressed, or I expressed actually, very grave concerns because I started to see this sort of fiery demagogue um, being quoted more and more often by the press. And what really, really worried me was the fact that you know, he may, as the youth leader, he would very seldom have been somebody who had anything to say on behalf of the ANC with regard to policy or actions, etc. So why was he constantly being quoted? And I was concerned that the media was giving him space that he didn't deserve because he was very, he's an exciting personality, he was something different, he was sure of himself, he was articulate and bright. And over the years, I've held by that view, and it's just got stronger, that what, that to a large extent, the media made the mistake of taking the visible person, not the intellect, not the intellect, but the, the, the demagogue, and gave him space he didn't need, he didn't deserve, and so, to a large extent, the media is partly responsible for the creation of the man that is Julius Malema, head of the EFF, Commander-in-Chief. Now, I mean, Commander-in-Chief, this is a military appellation um, and usually reserved for presidents of, of, of countries. So you can see that kind of desire to wield power and to exude power. And we've seen years of disruptions in Parliament that have been rude in bad taste, have cause things not to happen, uh, very frustrating for people. I mean, they might have been amusing to some extent the first once or twice, and then they stopped being amusing. They stopped, They just became aggressive and rude, and they set a tone for a politics that has become, uh, has become uh, coarse. And in this respect, I have a look at an article by Stephen Hurtis in the Daily Maverick, and he says that Julius Malem had dramatically changed our politics into a coarser, much more ugly personal affair that is often driven by issues of racial identity along with greater tolerance of corruption. Now, he's the guy who's now going to undo corruption, but uh, the, the, the EFF is corrupt as they come. And 
the question he he asked was whether the EFF has the momentum to grow or shrink in next year's poll. Um, now, Malema did a couple of very strange things ju- leading up to and at this huge rally. The first thing he did was he put out into the press a list of names of party members or officials who had not m- achieved getting people onto buses to be bussed up to FNB Stadium for this uh, for this event. And he was very emphatic about the fact that they would be dealt with. I mean, wow, gosh in heaven. I mean, you, you know, if you think they've been incompetent and they should have done better, you deal with them in private. You do not put their names in the public sphere unless, of course, you want to create great shame, great embarrassment, and perhaps great fears and indicate that, you know, they, they, they don't have long in the party to go. Um, but the other thing is, he, the, the thing is, he, he prayed to, I thought in the latter part of his shindig, he praised Floyd Chavambo, who, who is his deputy, who he was at university, who, who he was, who was in the ANC, sorry, with him, and who was also expelled at the same time that he was. So they formed the EFF together. And he heaped him with praise, and then he directly said that high-level supporters of him who, st- who, who went against him and went against the wishes of the EFF um, would not be tolerated. And it's clearly a dig at Shivambo, saying to him that, you know, he can't... You know, his, his position is not secure. And he confirmed, in fact, two things. One is he thinks he can say these things because he has so solidified his position in the EFF. Um, and the other is because he, he really is a one-man party. And, I mean, we've always said that he is a one-man party, that the EFF, without Malema, doesn't matter who, whether it's Floyd Chavambo or Buyseni Dlozi, who is his, are his two co-leaders, if, if, if he's not there, the party is not there. I mean, it, it is, it is a personality cult after all. And, um, he's, so this is what we've come to see, and he doesn't seem to be affected by failure. I mean, his shutdown of a few months ago, national shutdown, I think it was in December, where he, after the shutdown, which was not a great success, he didn't get the support he, he wanted, so it was very much a damn squib, unlike Saturday. Um, and he said to the National Assembly, I'm in charge. I've got you by the scrotum. There is nothing you can do, nothing all of you combined. You can scream anyhow you want. Once more, I demonstrated to you with said shutdown. Black opposition, white opposition with the ruling party combined. I'm in charge and I want that to sink in. Now, certainly that might be hyperbolic, but if you say it often, that, that sort of thing often enough, which we know he has and how it dealt with some of that stuff, um, I think he's not far from the point where he is probably hoping that something he says will spur his supporters into crossing the constitutional line on hate speech and actually being an imminent threat, carrying an imminent threat of, of, of violence. Um, but on the other hand, other, um, the, there is one problem is the EFF has said that after the next elections, if it's necessary, so here's the pragmatic point, 
if it's necessary, he will go into coalition with the ANC. Um, and certainly, I think most, if not all, of the op- of the other opposition parties will no, not go into coalition with the EFF again. One of the problems is a problem that I think most opposition parties would face, if not all of them, if they're going to coalition, coalition with the ANC, and they're not just an ANC light, you know, sitting there pretending to be something else. I think one of the problems is that the one thing that would attract voters to the EFF or the DA or to PA or any of these groupings is the very fact that they are in opposition to the ANC. So going to into uh, an alliance with the ANC would be militate against everything that they want and they would be hugely, hugely unimpressed. And that may, that may be the one thing that in advance suggests he's not being serious. It's all a, 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 he's stretching for power. He wants that and going to alliance with the ANC, make sure he gets national power. But that is not what any of his voters want from him. I mean, the very, very vote that people, reason they would vote for what essentially is a, a breakaway from the ANC. Um, who talks against the ANC constantly and uninterruptedly is that he would be, they would not be in alliance with them. That, that two nodding's not, would not happen. So that is the very real problem that, that the EFF faces. No matter how many dramatic c- celebrations he has in red, uh, with his pumped fist, uh, sh- thrown out in a Nazi salute. So it's, it's really, really, it's, it's an open question, but I, I think, I think the bottom line is no one, and least of all the media, can afford to deal him, deal with him in anything but very circumspect terms. Um, Stephen Crutus, I think, says it correctly when he says that the best way to sum up this part of the impact of the EFF, that's its disruption and I think what we saw on Saturday, is that it has brought the popular term a toxic masculinity of violence to our politics. Uh, it has made our politics more about ego, anger, and brute violence. Uh, and it has been accompanied by physical and verbal violence against women in the party. It's, they, he and, and both of his, on separate occasions, he and both of his sidekicks have um, assaulted people or threatened them, and it's, it's gone on, you know, it's gone on publicly. And, you know, it's just... It's literally chest-thumping stuff, and I think in reality it's led, the leadership of the EFF is essentially misogynistic. We have to remember, and Stephen Curtis points out, that two years before Malema launched the EFF, it was clear that he was using his apparent control of tender process in Limpopo to make money. And despite being criminally charged at one point for this and now for other things, he has never faced proper legal process. BBS scandal being one of them. So one has to, one has to wonder why he hasn't. Has the VBS scandal been that difficult to provide evidence against him? I certainly hope not. And I think if, if it'll help to deal with the toxic masculinity that Malema represents, bring it on. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Talking of chilling influences, um, our president, Sir Ramaphosa, and his cabinet have recently approved 
the 2023 General Intelligent Laws Amendment Bill, GILAB. Got to have an acronym, GILAB. And it's intended to bring several major changes to the laws governing the state security agency, um, which is South Africa's leading government intelligence and security body. Now, these changes are part in response, um, a response from Ramaphosa's government to remedy the ingrained flaws of the uh, agency, which include political factionalism, which I mean, uh, Jacob Zuma virtually invented it, uh, mismanagement of millions in covert funding and a general disregard for the law and the constitution. So there are big things for the, for the government to deal with on that, in that very important, very important and influential agency. The Zonda Commission f- did not have nice things to say about them and following those revelations, the agency was absorbed into the presidency. A part of, as a part of what on paper seem to be efforts to reform the security services and to bring its ethos in line with the democratic values espoused in the 1994 intelligence white paper. Now, the problem is, is the national, the um, non-governmental sector runs the risk of being sucked into this vortex of, uh, of impropriety and frankly, smacks of the sort of national security things that go on in authoritarian governments such as the Russian and the Chinese. Now, the, what the, now we know, and I'm, I'm proud to be one of them, non-governmental organizations play an absolutely pivotal role in promoting document democracy and human rights and have routinely stepped in where government has failed and whether it be the provision of certain services or challenging or just getting the information out there and contradicting anything that the government says which we believe is harmful or untrue. That's what NGOs do and South Africa has a very strong NGO sector. Uh, Now the this bill could lead to intensive state-sanctioned surveillance of these organizations, which potentially undermines not only their operations, but uh, democracy itself. It goes, something goes something like this. Persons seeking to establish an operation and operate NGOs and religious institutions may soon face compulsory vetting by state security forces to determine if they pose a threat to national security. Now, this is really, you know, in line with their, their buddies in China and Russia, um, where, you know, and their NGOs are potential agents of enemy states bent on undermining national stability and prosperity and are either not allowed to exist or are eventually shut down. Um, and the minister in the presidency responsible for state security has released this bill which aligns, which could align us with these authoritarian regimes. The, basically, the, this act, this bill, sorry, this bill, amends the 1994 Strategic Intelligence Act to say that state security services, quote, must conduct a vesting, a, a vetting investigation in the prescribed manner to determine the security competence of a person if some, such a person seeks to establish and operate a non-governmental organization or religious institution. Um, now, and before this bill 
was created, the vetting was limited to persons with access to state classified information or national key points, which is at best how it should be. And the process is, aims to establish if a person is at a risk of being bribed or blackmailed by a foreign state, risking, risking, sorry, wishing to get access to sensitive government information. Now, whereas previously any form of vetting would be discretionary, now it must be done and it seems that there are no exceptions to it and that legally dragging the NGO sector into the sphere of national security just sends us down a foreign, a very authoritarian foreign government path. It determines... It, it, determines whether NGOs are committing or carrying out uh, political activity. It's just actually unbelievable. Such organizations, and let's, let's, you know, just in case we didn't get the message, are obliged to register as foreign agents. And so presumably if they, if, if they, uh, if they obtain foreign funding, I'm not entirely sure whether it's that or more widely than that. And it requires a tedious administration, administrative process. And if legal requirements are not met, officials of those organizations run the risk of imprisonment or a fine. Um, this is beyond belief to be, to be honest. And, you know, we, we'll end up with a situation where NGOs who promote human rights and democratic principles in countries such as China, where they're shut down, and Russia, or having their activities serious, limit, seriously limited, you know, and it's just, sorry, I can't, I'm too speechless for words. We are going into the, into the warm embrace of those friends of ours, particularly as we know, the ANC's very warm relations with Russia. But the fact that it includes religious inf- institutions and churches, that shows a level of autocratic paranoia that I just don't think we want to go there, um, and neither does the government. And I have – let's put it this way. If it goes any further and if it gets to the point where the various houses of parliament uh, uh, agree to this legislation, there will be constitutional action taken or taken against the bill for being unconstitutional the one could probably assume that the tighter the restriction on any information that an NGO may put out or may wish to put out or that they or that the government would wish not to be put not to put out the more dangerous that information is um Whereas restricted information could cause an inconvenience in the wrong hands, leaks of top-secret information could result in war. Um, I think that's rather wishful in terms of what the South African government thinks it could face and whether it could counter an attack or try and attack another country. But, you know, we we have our standards and we have our... Our ideas of, of getting above ourselves and uh, maybe this, this is part of that. It's, 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 it's part of another uh, example of mas- masculine tox- uh, toxicity or toxic masculinity, whichever way it, it gets uh, determined. It's, it's a sign of a, of a government that actually is not just, not just lost control, but in my view, and I said I'd write an article and I did, and it's in, current daily friend that actually doesn't know 
how to do things, how to make things happen positively that change the country. They, they don't get the issue of skills and the need for skills and experience and wisdom. But what they can do is stop people from doing things and issue legislation that stops people from doing things. And that would give them a holdover society and I think it would really resonate with the African National Congress's worst instincts and part of their ongoing march towards socialism and communism. So we will keep an eye out for that because it, it is very, it looks very, very nasty. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Just picking up on that last topic, um, I'm going to do something different. I'm actually going to do a bit of promotion. Our colleague, Dr. Je- uh, Anthea Jeffrey, who's a superb researcher, has written a book called uh, Countdown to Socialism, the National Democratic Revolution in South Africa since 1994. And essentially what she has done is she has tracked and researched and recorded what the ANC has said or done since 1994, which is a continuation of what happened before 1994, to get towards essentially a communist society, um, that very communist totalitarian society that we've just been uh, been talking about. She describes the transformation that they propose that they've been working on as being implemented as via a Moscow-inspired national democratic revolution dating back many decades. And despite the Soviet Union's collapse in 1991, the ANC-SACP alliance still sees the NDR as offering the most direct route to socialism in South Africa and hence as its bedrock strategy. Now, the origins of that lie with Lenin and like most... um, communist ideology and everything that precedes it, it's it's verbose and often not entirely comprehensible, but she is trying to get across the message that the ANC always from the early 60s was always at the mercy of the SACP and that has continued through the era of apartheid, through the era of transformation into where we are right now. Um, She says that the NDR is the key to understanding ANC rule over some 30 years, yet most South Africans have been kept in the dark on it, and the book aims to fill that gap. It's it's readable, the language is straightforward, and for anyone interested, tomorrow night um, at Exclusive Books in Hyde Park, she is uh, she's doing her launch there at 6 o'clock for 6.30, and if you want to attend, just go to events at exclusivebooks.co.za. Otherwise, I'm hoping to have uh, Anthea on the show next week to to talk about the book and give us to give us the lowdown because this explains a lot. She has written before, and I don't think she's received as much favorable coverage as in, with this book because people weren't taking it seriously. Uh, you know, nineteen. 9394 when she I think when she last when her last book came out um People's War so I do um urge you to read anything that's been written on it there have been a few articles by her and by different people on the daily friend on the countdown to socialism she will be 
um, health uh, willing, she will be with us next week. And feel free to uh, to attend the launch tomorrow night at Exclusives, 6 for 6.30 at events, events at exclusivebooks.co.za. So in light of all that fascism, Marxism, communism, and all-around totalitarian environment we run the risk of being in, I wish you well, nevertheless, and look forward to talking to you next week.